So with that said, we are going to jump into today's text. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be uh, going back a little bit. I was so grateful for Pastor Paulo, who was here for the last two weeks. Weren't his sermons awesome? Holy smokes, they were good. That's one of those things, like when I, when I ask a guest preacher to come, I love it when they're better than me, but I hate following after them when they're better than me. It's like I kind of wish there was another gap in there and someone tanked and then I can't, no, I'm just kidding. Okay, I'm kidding. Uh, Pastor Paulo is a friend of mine. I love him dearly. He's a big friend of our ministry here and we love supporting him in his church plant at Pivot 613. And I was chatting with him after his messages and, and now... But planning this sermon series, I just gave Paulo the text. I said, if you could hit on these texts in the Gospel of Mark, that would be awesome. But his message, I believe, was incredibly prophetic. And what I mean by prophetic, I don't mean like, you know, like kind of the weird part of the prophetic. I mean, he was just speaking into our past of where God has brought us. And I believe he was preparing us for where God is calling us in the future. Because God is doing, I pray this all the time, that God would do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. And I believe God is actually doing that in our day. I think we as Christians can feel so discouraged. We go, oh, you know, the church is dying. And oh, we Christians, we're not respected. And wah, wah, wine, wine, wine. But when you actually study, when you actually look what God is doing in our nation, when you look at what God is doing around the world, God is on the move in mighty, mighty ways. And he's working through his church. It's so exciting. And so I've so appreciated Paulo and what he had to share for the last couple of weeks while I was on uh, my leadership training sabbatical. But have you ever noticed when God is moving, when things are going really, really well, whether it's in your life or in your church, in your ministry, whatever that looks like, have you ever noticed that when things are going really well, that that's when the critics start showing up. That ever happened to you? Like things in life are just going great. You know, at your job, in your church, in ministry, whatever that is, things are going great, and the critics show up. Well, I would have done it better than that. I wouldn't have done it like that. I would have done it for cheaper. I would have done it faster. I would have done it this way. I don't like that. Complain, complain, criticize. What is that? What is it about human nature when we see something that is successful, when we see something that is being blessed of God, the reaction is to criticize it. Because we don't criticize things that are mediocre. We seem to be happy when everything's mediocre. No one complains about anything when it's mediocre. But as soon as things start becoming excellent, when we see God truly doing immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, then the critics come out. And I think the reason that happens, it's because it's biblical. (laughs) I think it happens because it's biblical. There's something about the nature of people. There's something about even the nature of the church that when God is on the move, there's something that brings out the critics. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to go back a little bit on the Paulo touched a little bit on this text last week, but I want to get deeper into uh, Mark chapter 3. And what I want to do, originally what I was going to do, I was going to do a sermon on how do we um, overcome critics. So how do we deal with critics? That's what I was going to preach on. How do you deal with the critic? How do we develop a thicker skin? 
and trust God more so we can deal with critics. The problem is, I've already taught on that before. If you download our church app, you can go into our past resources. You can find some of my leadership blogs in there. You can find our grow training, which is part of our discipleship training. I've taught already multiple times on how to deal with criticism. What I want to do today is I want to do um, more heart surgery. I want us to open up our hearts a little bit more to, to God's word. And I want us to wrestle with the question, not how do I deal with the critic, rather, what if I'm the critic? Ouch, Pastor Kevin, go back on vacation. <laughs> That's the work that we need the Word of God to do in our hearts. The point, the reason for the, studying the Word of God is so it changes us. Not just so it puffs us up and makes us more intelligent to people. We want it to change our hearts. So today I want us to ask the question, what if I am the critic? And we're going to ask that question by looking here at Mark chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 20. I would encourage you to follow along the text, whether through the church app or with the text on the screen or the Bible in front of you. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. It says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. I hate it when the crowds interrupt our Baptist potlucks. You know, it's like, come on, man, we're trying to eat here. The crowd shows up. Jesus and his disciples aren't even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. Thank you. And then the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. Thank you very much for that. And so Jesus called them, called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. The people around Jesus were looking at what he was doing, and his conclu- their conclusion was, this is impure. They're blaspheming the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. <laughs> that they see God at work. And they go, nah, that's impure. And then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Get him out of there. A crowd was sitting around him and told them, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus replies, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. A a method of studying the Bible that I really love especially in a text like this, which is known as a narrative text. Basically, narrative means story. Whenever you have like one of the Gospels or some of the, letter, some of the books in the Old Testament where it's telling a story, a great Bible study method 
if you want to do heart work, not just head work, because I think sometimes as Christians we do a lot of head work, right? We study the Hebrew, we study the Greek, we study the verb tenses and how the words all break down and whether, you know, there's like an A, B, C, B, C, A type, you know, structures. We, if you don't know what that is, come hang out with me one Wednesday night and I'll teach you that stuff and geek out over it, okay? Um, but when we get stuck in the head stuff, a great method to work on our hearts is the method where we take a story like this and we put ourselves in the shoes of some of the people in the story. And I think our natural tendency when we study the Bible that way is to put us in the shoes of the hero. Because <laughs> we like being the hero. <laughs> when we read a story like this, oh yeah, I can picture myself being Jesus, you know, complaining against all these complainers. You know, and Jesus rising up against these people and putting them in their place. Yeah, I relate to that. I'm going to do that more often. We don't tend to put ourselves in the shoes of the bad guy in the story. Because we don't like to think we're a bad guy or a bad girl. <laughs> we, when we read a story, you know, where you read about the Pharisees, who wants to admit they're a Pharisee? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> I'm not a Pharisee. No way, no how. I'm, well, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I would never do that. Eh, would you? Are you sure you wouldn't? So that Bible study method of really putting ourselves into the shoes of other people is kind of what I want us to do today. I want us to look at this topic of overcoming criticism, but not overcoming the critics who come at us. How do we ensure we are not the critic? How do we overcome the criticism that could be in our own hearts? Because <laughs> Jesus wants to overcome that. If God is doing a new thing, if God is moving in mighty ways in your life, the danger is for all of us, no matter how long we've been following Jesus, the danger is for all of us to criticize it instead of getting on board with it. So I want to look at the three different groups of people here. Now, I know a lot of you laugh. Oh, there's another three-point sermon. That's the way Kevin preaches. No, it's not. I wasn't just trying to get three points. There's literally three groups of people here. Okay, so that's why it's three this week. Okay, yes, sometimes I push it. I get it. I'm a three-point sermon kind of guy. But here are the three groups of people. And I want us to ask ourselves these questions. To ask ourselves, am I the critic? The first question is, I encourage you to write these questions down and think about them, pray about them, talk about them in your family, and your life group. The first question is this. What if you are a critical associate? What if you are a critical associate? The first group of people who come, we see them here in, in Mark chapter 3 and verse 21. It says, when his family heard about this, so Jesus teaching in this house, the house is just absolutely packed with people. It's so full. They can't even eat. They're working. They're ministering. They're doing all this stuff. Jesus' family hear about this, and they go to take charge of him. Now, this word family, in the Greek, it could mean um, not necessarily blood family. It could mean very close associates. Think for a moment. Have any of you ever had like a really close friend Growing up, and, and so when you were growing up, this really close friend was so close to your family, you made your kids call that person, you know, Uncle Tommy or Aunt Susie. I was that. I had one of my best friends. He was the first guy in my group of friends to have. And he made his kid call all of us Uncle Kevin and Uncle Mike and Uncle Mark. And, and you know, it was weird. Like, dude, like, it's not my nephew, but called us because we were close. I'm Uncle Kevin. 
That's what this word most likely means. It's that level of closeness. People that you're walking with, that you're doing life with, that are really close to you, these are these associates that are in our lives. What if you are the critical associate? The associate who sees the work of God. These associates come to see what Jesus is doing. These are people who are close to him. And their response to what he is doing is not, wow, praise be to God of what is happening in this place. Their response is, Jesus is nuts. He's out of his mind. Awfully critical from people who are supposed to be the closest to us. What if I'm the critical associate? I think what happens for a lot of us is pride kicks in. When we see God working in amazing ways in people who are close to us, and he's not working the same way in us, pride kicks in. And pride is ugly, and it's dark, and it will bring even the most committed Christian down a dark path. I hate to admit this, but I've, de- I've struggled with this. I remember just a couple of years ago, we were having one of our baptism Sundays. If you haven't seen one of our baptisms, we rent a hot tub. We usually put it right here. It's like marine land. We do like the splash zone. You know, we really love everyone getting wet when we do baptism. Full body immersion, I'm a big believer in it. And Sundays when we do baptism are by far my favorite Sundays when we gather. Because I firmly believe that is the purpose of the church. That is why the church exists. We gather to worship, to learn from the word of God, to build one another up, to encourage one another, to send us out, to reach more people for Jesus. That's the mission. Churches that are no longer baptizing people are off mission. And I love the fact that we're on mission. We had a baptism service and we baptized three people. And I was pumped, and I was excited, and I'm walking, I'm on one of those Holy Spirit hangovers, that's what I call it, the Holy Spirit hangover, where I just go home, and I'm so happy, and I'm so excited, and I go on Facebook, stupid Facebook, go on Facebook, and one of my best friends, a pastor, good friend of mine, that same Sunday baptized 35 people, and something happened. Why didn't I baptize 35 people? What's wrong with me? Why aren't I good enough? Why aren't our smart, you know, am I not as good of a pastor as he is? What's wrong with my church? Is my church not as good as his church? Where does that come from? It comes from pride. When we see God moving in our associates, we become the critic if we're not careful. Pride can creep in at a moment's notice. You don't know where it just shows up. And we've got to deal with that. We've got to squish it and kill it fast. (laughs) Because you don't want that to take root. That you start criticizing every time you see God working. Look at that church that's growing. Well, they're watering down the gospel. Maybe not, you know, or this church that's being blessed. Oh, they're not real Christians or this denomination or these things. We can be the critic 
to people who are close to us if we're not careful because we let pride get in the way. So that's the first question we have to deal with. Are, you know, what if you are the critical now, what, what if you're the critical associate? Make sure we have to guard against that pride. The second question we have to ask ourselves, and this is a big one. This is a big one for all of us, me in particular. What if you are a critical church leader? What if you are a critical church leader? Look how the story continues here in Mark chapter 3, going down into verse, uh, you know, here in the starting in verse uh, 22 talks about the teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem. So what's going on here is these teachers of the religious law are in Jerusalem. Jesus currently is in Galilee at this point. It's about 70 miles between Jerusalem and Galilee. The average human walks at about four miles per hour. So if these people didn't take a donkey down from Jerusalem, if they walked, it would have taken them about 17 and a half hours to walk down from Jerusalem to check out what Jesus was doing. Now think about that for a moment. When's the last time you went on a 17-hour walk to go check something out? It's like, hey, I heard God is working down there. I'm going to like start walking and show up and see what's going on. Anyone ever done that? Of course we haven't. So you'd think people who've heard about something that God is doing who are willing to do a 17-hour walk, you would think those are the most on-fire, God-loving, excited people ever. Because that seems like the crazy Christians, right? Well, I heard God's doing this amazing thing in Toronto, so I'm going to like just start walking to Toronto and find out and see it because I'm so excited about God. You'd think that's what was happening, but no, it's the exact opposite. They come, they do that walk to see what Jesus has done and say he's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. That's a long walk to criticize someone. <laughs> because what we see in the heart of these church leaders is inflexibility. These church leaders are inflexible. They love their way of doing things. See, the Jewish people have created the greatest religion the world has ever seen. It has outlasted every other religion on the planet. Think about, if you study the Old Testament and look at all the old gods that were worshipped and the old different styles and ways of worship, none of them exist anymore except for Judaism. They've created an incredible system. And they created a system that was so good and so successful when the Messiah finally showed up. The Messiah who they were waiting for They had become completely and totally inflexible. They had to guard their way of doing things. That is the most dangerous thing for church leaders. When church leaders, whether in your life group, whether in kids ministry, youth ministry, whether you're an elder or a deacon, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a missionary, One of the most dangerous things that could happen to us is success. You know why? Because once you're successful, then you move into guarding your success. This worked in 1968. So I better keep doing it the same way I did it in 1968. 
We move from hearing from God, doing the will of God, being open to God changing things up, and we move from the early days of ministry, when we had no clue what we were doing, to now becoming experts of ministry, and now we become inflexible. And if we're not careful, because of that inflexibility, we can become a critical church leader at any level. And this one's hard for me to admit, but I have been inflexible. Right? The default of my flesh is to be critical. When people come to me and say, Kevin, what do you like? I don't know what I like. I just know what I hate. <laughs> it's a weird place to be sometimes. When I don't know what I like, I don't know what I want, but I know what I don't like and I know what I don't want. And if I'm not careful, I can be critical. I can be very critical. <laughs> I can be opinionated. And the reason I can be opinionated is because I have a pretty good opinion. <laughs> I read a lot. I study a lot. I get together with other pastors a lot. Like I talk with our fellowship. I meet with missionaries. I do, I do all the things that pastors do. I've become an expert in this. And so when God does something that's outside of my comfort zone, when God does something that's outside of my wheelhouse, when someone says, Pastor Kevin, I really see God moving like this. We should do this. My flesh wants to go, no. Why not? Because I just don't like it. (laughs) It creeps in. We can become critical church leaders without even realizing it. I'm incredibly grateful for how much my Father in Heaven loves me. (laughs) That He has been working in my life for the last eight years to kill this in me. (laughs) And it started over eight years ago where Danielle and I were in Chicago. (laughs) And we were at a conference in Chicago at Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. And uh, there was a conference being put on by Andy Stanley and Craig Rochelle. And I don't remember a lot of the details of this conference, but I remember one thing that Andy Stanley said. And he said this, he said, um, just because you're the leader, you don't need to be the smartest man in the room. And for some reason, that broke me. I hit the floor and I started weeping and weeping and weeping because my ministry up to that point was I was trying to prove that I am the smartest man in the room. That's what your church pays you for. Church pays you to be the smartest man in the room. You better know how to do this more than anybody else. That's actually not biblical leadership. That's something else. I actually think that's something demonic because we've taken out more church leaders that way. Leadership doesn't mean you're the smartest man or woman in the room. Leadership doesn't mean you know all the answers. Leadership just means you're called to lead. That you have to somehow herd all the cats together. And church ministry is exactly like that. It's herding cats. I call ministry, um, a lot of times when God is working and doing amazing new things, it's like we're in an airplane that's at 35,000 feet. And we're completely redesigning the airplane while it's in the air. Hey, we want to change how we do worship. We want to move to two services. Okay, great. Let's pull off this wing and put another wing on it while it's still flying. (laughs) Good luck with that. Right? All leadership means is being humble, being a humble servant, willing to serve others, to equip others, to make people better than yourselves. And when I learned that, that was the most freeing thing I ever learned. That I don't have to be all critical. I don't have to have all the answers. What I just need to do is surround myself with people who are even better than me. I want a staff that's smarter than me. 
I want elders who know their Bible better than me. I want church leaders and everyone in every ministry position that we have at that, that you are a million times better at your role than I ever could be. You don't need to come to me and say, Pastor Kevin, what should I do? I should be able to go to you and say, what are you doing? And how do I help come alongside you along this vision and mission that God has called us to? I don't have to have all the answers. It's so freeing. But it's there. It comes out. We can be critical church leaders if we're not careful because we become inflexible. In your area of ministry, are you inflexible? Do you ever find yourself asking questions like, we don't do this here. I've always done it this way. I won't. You might be inflexible. You might have to look at that. And then the third and final question I want us to look at here from this text is this. What if you are a critical family member? What if you are a critical family member? Right, the story here in Mark 3 finishes with Jesus' mother and brothers arriving to basically stop what he's doing. Now, if you come from a church tradition that believes Jesus didn't have brothers, maybe you read a passage like this and you think that it's, well, he's talking about, yo, my brother. He's talking about that. If I, sorry if, I, if that offended anybody. <laughs> Apologize. Um, but we, we tend, people from that tradition will tend to read those verses that way, but the, the Greek doesn't allow for that. The Greek writing here is brothers. It, it, it is direct family, a blood family. Right, and so, and so it's, it's kind of hard sometimes to get our mind around it, but yes, Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin, absolutely. But Mary and Joseph were good Hebrew people following the Hebrew commandments of be fruitful and multiply. Okay, Mary and Joseph were on, had a really good yada relationship. And when you have a really good yada relationship where you know each other in the biblical sense, the outpouring of knowing each other in the biblical sense is children. Okay? Sorry, that's a rabbit trail. I'll get back to my notes. Okay. <laughs> family. When God works in our family and doesn't seem to be working in us, we can become critical because it touches on our self-interest. See, we in our family, especially if you're parents, if you're parents, you have a wonderful plan for your children. <laughs> you do. I do. I have a wonderful plan for my children. And the challenge can be, what if it's not, what if my plan for my children is not God's plan for my children? It's easy for me to become critical that way. Because I've got my plan for them. My self-interest. I was talking with a mentor of mine years ago, and uh, this mentor of mine back in Montreal, he uh, and his family were very intentional to be a family that constantly supported missionaries. Like they gave to a lot of mission organizations, but what they also did is they intentionally bought a home that had multiple spare rooms so that missionaries, when they were in town to visit churches, they could have a free place to stay. They intentionally bought a third car to leave it in the garage whenever a missionary would show up so that the missionary would have a car to use to go and visit the people that he or she needed to visit. This whole family lived and breathed missions. And then their daughter got a little older and picked up and moved to Africa. 
And this buddy of mine, this mentor of mine, was furious. It's like, wow, how's she going to make a living? How is she going to, you know, take care of her needs? That place is dangerous. You know, a white girl by herself should move to that part of the world. She's like, it's crazy. He was furious. And we're kind of sitting there going, like, he's a mentor of ours. And at that moment, we kind of had to mentor him and say, dude, like, that was, that's how you raised her. (laughs) Like, you raised her to say, this is what we do here. And now because of your self-interest, you're critical. Over the years, I've talked to parents who adamantly don't want their children to go into pastoral ministry. And you know, when I talk to those parents, you know the reason why they don't want their kid to go into pastoral ministry? is because they've seen how some pastors have been treated and they don't want their son to be treated that way. I go, well, then maybe you should start treating pastors better. (laughs) It's like they become critical that God wants to do something incredible. I believe ministry is the most amazing job. Anyone, if you're blessed to be called to it, it's not a job. It's a life. We need to be excited about that. Not critical of it. But we have our self-interest. Jesus loves you, but I've got a wonderful plan for your life. We become critical of family when God shows up in someone's life and we don't like it. So our pride, our inflexibility, our self-interest, how do we overcome that? How do we deal with that? If those things are in our hearts, how do we overcome that type of criticism? I believe Jesus gives us the answer in the very last verse of this text where Jesus says, whoever does God's will. God's will. We have to learn to be men and women, boys and girls who can recognize God's will and put God's will before our will. I mean, we pray it in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. Your will be done. Not my pride, not my inflexibility, not my self-interest. Your will, your will be done. The Apostle Paul talks about this. How can we seek out God's will more? Paul writes to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. Pride? Do we see that in our world today? Yes. Inflexibility? Do we see that in our world today? Self-interest? Oh, yeah, amen. Those are things of the world. Paul says, do not conform to those. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Yes, have discernment. Yes, test things. Yes, make sure that decisions are lining up with the word of God, but not in a spirit of criticism. 
I went on a men's retreat about 10 years ago when God started me on this journey because I was on the path of becoming a critical Christian. I was. I was on it, and I embraced it, and it was fun. (laughs) Criticizing people is fun. Sin is fun until it comes out all over the place, and it's a mess. Okay? But I went to this men's retreat, and this guy took us aside. I don't remember who the speaker was. I don't remember what he taught on. I don't remember anything. But all I remember is he said this. He said, men, in the body of Christ, there is no spiritual gift of criticism. Put it to death. That's of your flesh. That's of the world. And then he went on and said, men, you are called to lift up holy hands and pray. You are called to lay down your lives for your wives. You're called to serve the bride of Christ. Put away the things of the world, your pride, your inflexibility, your self-interest. Know the will of God, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When God starts working in ways that we couldn't even ask or imagine, it'll be confusing. It'll be scary. It may seem like a lot of work, but we can trust it. When we kill our criticism of it. kill our pride, to kill our inflexibility, to kill our self-interest, because ultimately Jesus died to those things. When Jesus came to earth, lived a life as a man, fully man and fully God, he set aside his pride. He could have just showed up in the fullness of his glory and demand worship and demand servitude and demand everything, and he didn't do that. He didn't claim that. He lived a humble servant life, or he put a towel around himself and washed the feet of sinful men. He put aside his pride. He put aside his inflexibility. God was doing a new thing. God created a new covenant. That we didn't have to be religious following all these rules and traditions anymore. That a new covenant had come. That the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world had come. Something new. Not inflexible. And it definitely definitely wasn't Jesus. It wasn't in Jesus's self-interest to go to the cross and become sin for us. When the wrath of God against sin, the wrath that you and I earn that we should have received because of sin went completely on Jesus. And in his dying breath declared it is finished. Jesus died to pride inflexibility, and self-interest. So we need to die to that too. And when we take those steps of faith, when we pray, when we read the Bible, when we get together in our life group, get into meaningful relationship with people, when we serve others, when we give, all of those spiritual disciplines that we do are to break down this sin in our life. There's no spiritual gift of criticism in the church. There's no spiritual gift of criticism in the church. But we can be the critic. I can be the critic. I could be critical of associates. I could be critical as a church leader. I could be critical as a family member. And so can you. So let's kill that together and seek the true, pleasing, good, perfect will of God in our lives and here in our church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you this day for your word and 
whew, I thought this was going to be an easy one to preach until I had to look at my own heart. And so, God, I'm grateful for how your word chips away the sin in our lives, the hardness of our hearts to transform us and make us more like Jesus. Father, I am grateful that there is no condemnation. There's no guilt. There's no shame for those of us who are Christians because what Jesus has done. But there is correction. There is rebuking. There's some challenging things that we need to deal with sometimes. So, Lord, I pray for everyone here and everyone watching online that we would ask ourselves the hard question. We would ask ourselves, am I the critic? And if the answer is yes, in any part of our lives, Lord, we today give you permission to work on that, to remove it in any way that you need to remove it, that you bring people into our lives who could come alongside us, that you bring situations into our life that would challenge us, that would stretch us. But God, we give you permission today to break us, free us from being the critic. So we will not criticize the work that you are doing but we will embrace it and be an active participant in it. If you're here today, or if you're watching this online, and you're hearing this, and, and this idea of being a follower of Jesus is new to you. <laughs> you know, maybe you don't believe in the same way that, that I'm coming across as believing. I just want you to know how much God loves you. <laughs> and, um, and, being a follower of Jesus, being brought into the family of God, isn't this big, complicated thing. I think somehow, I don't know where we lost track of this, but somehow we've made this so complicated. We've turned the Christian faith into, first, you need to act like us and behave like us, then you can belong to us. But that's actually the direct opposite of the message of Jesus. That The message of Jesus is you belong. That there's a God in heaven who loves you. And that you don't need to be religious. You don't have to study your Bible. You don't have to volunteer. You don't have to give money. You don't have to do all these rules to be right with God. You just need to believe in the one that he sent. The one who paid for your sin. And it's so easy to do. You can even do that today at home, online, or here in this room. You can just pray a simple prayer that says, Thank you, thank you, God, that you sent Jesus to die for me. Thank you that my sins are forgiven because of what Christ has done. Today, I give you my life. And if you do that, the Bible says you are made new and you are brought into the family of God. And I praise God if you make that decision today. And we want to come alongside you as a church and help you in that journey to help you become more and more who God has created you to be. At this time, we're going to collect our offerings. This is just a part of our spiritual act of worship. If you're here today as a guest, please don't feel any obligation to give. We just hope that being with us today was a gift to you. If you're watching online and you want to give, just download the church app and you can give. click on the give button that way as well. So I'm just going to pray for our offering. Lord God, we praise you for, your genero- for the generosity of your people and how you are using the tithe to do more than we could ask or imagine, supporting missionaries and church plants and just getting the gospel, the good news of Jesus out across our city and around the world. Lord, we pray that you would multiply our generosity. Multiply it greatly for your glory's sake. As we continue to worship Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, speak to our hearts, minister to our hearts, 
set us free from the spirit of criticism and help us to embrace your perfect will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.